This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is March 26th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Even though no one was outside today, yours truly was. Not around human beings, mind you, but sporting a nice sunburn. The sun came out for Colin, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, first time in 2020 in Nashville. So it was a great day here. If, again, you could get outside and stay away from everyone. We're happy to have you with us. We've got a lot to get to. I'm going to talk some Lane Kiffin tonight. I'm going to take you back to 2017 and tell you a couple of really juicy story. Since a lot of you really loved that we went down memory lane the other night, I gave you some stuff about less miles. And if you missed that video, wait till the show's over, of course, and you can go to our YouTube channel and check it out. By the way, while you're here, I saw a stat. Colin, the stat shocked me. Do you know 97% of our traffic on this channel, the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel right now, is from unsubscribed viewers? So I figure, correct me if I'm wrong, I figure since you're already here and it's free, it would probably be wise to just go ahead and subscribe. So do that. Go ahead and subscribe. And if you're watching the video right now or in replay mode, click that thumbs up button because that really helps us too. The Late Kick podcast is up. Search Late Kick with Josh Pate wherever you get your podcast. Five-star reviews and comments really help us there too. So I'm going to get to a lot of stuff tonight, but what I wanted to lead the show with is something that is on everyone's mind. Every show we've had since... Uh, Feels like an eternity, but about two weeks now that we have been in essential personnel mode only here, and which means me and Colin are the only ones in this entire industrial park right now. And a lot of folks have been working from home, and a lot of people, as soon as you went into sort of quarantine mode, it was, let's have a feeling out process, let's see how this is going to work, and then, are they going to cancel March Madness? Boom, they canceled March Madness. Well, what about Major League Baseball? NBA, boom, boom, they're all gone. So, I don't know when that's going to start up again, but now I've noticed in earnest about the last 72 to 96 hours, a lot of the attention in my world, in the sports media industry, has slowly started shifting over here. And over here is actually a Warner ladder, but figuratively over here is football season. And so now people are asking the question that's really the only one that matters in this room, in this studio right now, what's going to happen with college football season? So I want to tell you something. Most of the time, you don't get the whole story. Even on this show, I try and give you as much as we can. However, a lot of the information that we gather is given to you with this prerequisite. Hey, this is off the record, right? And then begrudgingly, you have to say, yeah, it's off the record. Go ahead. And so I can't tell you everything that we get told. When I can, I do, trust me, but what I do try and do is take the information that we have and I try and paint you the most accurate, logic, and fact-based picture possible so that even though you don't know all the minute details, you know enough to formulate your own educated opinion that is made all the more educated by hopefully watching our show. I say that to say this, I can tell you the whole truth here because the whole truth is no one has a clue what's going to happen. 
So now that we have that out of the way, let's ask that question. Is the college football season going to start on time? I asked that, by the way, on the channel earlier today. Got a lot of votes. Uh, 10 minutes ago, as of 10 minutes ago, 72% of you thought that, yeah, it's going to start on time. I want to trust you guys. I really do. So let's talk about it. I will give you my opinion. I strongly believe we will have a college football season in 2020. What I don't know is what that's going to look like. But let me lick my finger and reach over here. And I want to read something that was pretty obscurely released today. Most of you probably didn't see this. Even those of you who were lounging around and surfing the web all day may not have seen this. Headline, March, uh, what is it, 25th, 26th, whatever it is. The canceling of the NCAA tournament due to nationwide spread of COVID-19 is no doubt disappointing for fans. I take this from the 24-7 Sports website, by the way. But it goes much deeper than just entertainment. It also costs schools significant money. Mind you, before I continue, this is just referencing the cancellation of the spring sports, most notably the NCAA tournament. I continue. On Thursday, the Board of Governors, yada, 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 high-level mustaches, they voted to distribute $225 million to D1 members to, in their words, specifically focus on supporting college athletes. The distribution will take place in June. You figure $225 million. That's a lot of money. That's true. We also have the theory of relativity in play here. Peace continues. How much of a cut is that for schools? Well, the revenue distribution was previously budgeted at approximately $600 million, down to $225. And by the way, in that $225 million that was distributed, $50 million of that came from an emergency reserve. In other words, they had planned for something going haywire and them having to dig into their own coffers, and those coffers are very, very deep. Circle back to football season. That, that cut from 600 to 225 is from canceling the NCAA tournament, essentially, and some other things, some other odds and ends. Do you have the slightest concept? Could you even begin to wrap your mind around what that article sounds like in January if the college football season has been canceled? Now, I understand a lot of this is out of our control, and a lot of this is out of the Board of Governors' control, but in college football world, that group right there, those aren't necessarily the ones that are going to make the decisions. Conference commissioners, university presidents, those are going to be the ones who make the decision. And you are going to jerk a college football season out of their cold, dead hands. And so here's what I wonder. I think we're going to have one. How long is it going to be? Are stadiums going to be open to the public? All of these are questions that I don't have the answer to. Could we see a delay to the start of the season? Could we see an abbreviated season? Now, I got an idea on the abbreviated season, because I think that's, um, at least if we get into June, something that a lot more people will be talking about. If you were watching SportsCenter last night, Scott Van Pelt, who, needless to say, does a phenomenal job for that upstart network in Bristol, Connecticut, he had Brian Kelly, head coach at Notre Dame, on his program. And so Brian Kelly was asked by Scott Van Pelt, what is the latest date that you foresee being able to open camp and still start the college football season on time. Not camp necessarily, but team activities. So Brian Kelly said, we need to start by July 1st. We need to have about a month's worth of conditioning. He said, our team doctors are gonna want six weeks. We need four weeks. And then we need a month's worth of camp like you'd normally have. So that's July 1st, again, for those in the back, that Brian Kelly, the head coach at Notre Dame, says he would need and he thinks would be necessary in order to start this thing on time. Right now, it is late March. June, 
July, August, April, May, June, July, August. So we got some time. How much time? Well, maybe not nearly as much as you would want to work with. So that got me thinking, what's the latest that we could start the season, period, and still have one? And so I did some texting around. I called a couple of people. Now, of course, none of these folks go on the record, partly because they don't want to be quoted, partly because they themselves don't really know. But I did get some people to at least confirm that some conversations had taken place about what an abbreviated schedule would look like. This is no surprise. I can tell you right now, every athletic department in the country has been working on formulating an emergency budget that, in a true disaster mode, does not include a football season. How much revenue are you shaving out? 70%? 80%? But they're formulating that. They don't want to ever have to use it. You know, They hope it's something they could sell on eBay 20 years from now that's worth a lot. You know, the budget that didn't include football for the University of Tennessee. <clears throat> Interesting item there. But back to my point. A lot of folks are tossing around the idea. Now, here, there are a million questions. Here's the one question. The one question is, what's the latest we could start the season? I came up with a little idea where we could start it as late as October 24th and keep the semifinal and the national championship games on the same date. This would require everyone shaving off every one of their non-conference games and only playing a conference schedule. Now, some conferences have eight conference games. Some have nine conference games. So let's safely say October 17th. Let's say we start it there. We need camp a month ahead of that. Brian Kelly says we need a month of conditioning before that. So two months lead up. Let's start this thing October 17th at the latest. And then if you play an eight-game conference season, started a week later, but the nine-game conference seasons started October 17th, that would take you to December 12th as your last regular season game. We're playing only conference games. December 19th would be your conference championship weekend. You would have the early signing date and Christmas the next week, and then you get ready to go play a semifinal game on January 1st and the national championship game on January 11th. This model is working off the concept that the semifinal and national championship dates are concrete. If they're not, if we can flex those around, then I think there's a lot more leeway. Obviously, there are a million questions here. First question is, to me, what do you do with independent teams? Because Notre Dame's not in a conference. Brigham Young's not in a conference. And I, um, I don't necessarily believe correct me if I'm wrong, Notre Dame fans, that you guys are going to be comfortable with someone saying, hey, you guys sit this one out or just go have some scrimmages. We'll get back to you in 2021. I don't necessarily know that that's the way Brian Kelly and uh, his staff would want things to go down. The other is, of course, what do you do with the differences in number of conference games? You know, Pac-12 plays nine, SEC plays eight. Uh, there's also the matter that not everyone schedules their season nice and neat where they play their four out of conference games, and then they dive into conference play. Some folks have got out of conference games scheduled the last weekend of the year. Clemson and South Carolina, Georgia and Georgia Tech. How do we rework all that? I have no clue. Hope we never have to visit it. But I do believe there's this disaster mode scenario wherein if we arrive at the conclusion that we can still get conference games in, I think you could start it as late as October. Many potential hangups here. I just wanted to float some things as I try and do every week or have tried to do as long as this has been going on, which again feels like an eternity. These are just some things that are being whispered about, bantied about, back room, nothing official, no one knows anything. My feeling is everyone wants to basically sit around, give it another month, and then revisit. So that's what we'll do, except that we're going to have shows, a couple of them every week, so we'll revisit it occasionally. The other night... Um, Colin and I were sitting around 
and we were looking at some of the feedback that we get on the channel here in the comments. And also you can follow me on Twitter at late kick Josh. I go back and forth with you guys all week there. I read everything you send me. And some people, and this has been a pretty common refrain. Anytime I ask for feedback, anytime I ask what you want talked about, anytime I run any kind of poll, everyone wants stories. And I know exactly how you feel. Because there was a time, I remember when I was in middle school, high school, I longed to be in the sports media business. And one thing I always wondered about this business that we're in now is the things that those guys and girls get to see the behind the scenes stuff that I as a fan, if I buy a ticket or I turn on the TV, I don't get to see that. And I always wondered why they never talked about it. So I've always made it a point to talk about it. I mean, we're on a sideline at some of the biggest games in America every Saturday in the fall, this year included, hopefully. We get to see a lot of stuff. As much as I can, I like to share it with you. And I say that because a lot of you ask for that and you ask for stories. So I gave you a couple the other night. <clears throat> you can go back and look on the YouTube channel. Um, if you missed those, one was about Lane Kiffin, whom we're going to talk about a little later in the show. One was about the night Les Miles got fired when they lost at Auburn. I wanted to tell you about the national championship game in 2017. This is a very popular game. That was second and 26. That's Tua Tungavailoa to Devontae Smith. He's not the one who started the game, of course. You guys remember how the game went. This is not to recap the game. But I live in Nashville now. I just moved up here. I've been here about two months and a lot believe you me, has happened in the two months that I've been here. Sometimes when I first got here, I would be driving downtown. And if you live in any kind of major city, Nashville is no different. You know, if you're downtown at the wrong time, if you miss a turn, it's going to take you 20 minutes to circle a block. And there may be times where your GPS is unclear or it just freezes up on you. And you just kind of close your eyes, kiss your hand twice, touch the ceiling and hope you're turning on the right road. That feeling when you turn down the right road, that's kind of how Alabama must have felt once that game ended. It was a literal soap opera. Do you recall all the stuff that happened? Not how the game ended. Colin and I were talking before the show. Alabama, not only does Georgia thrash them in the first half, Alabama goes into the locker room shutout. Uh, they had a player collapse on the sideline. They had a fight on their sideline. They had to bench their starting quarterback. All these things happened in the span of a four-quarter game, and they won the game. Not against Mercer, not against UL Monroe, against the University of Georgia for a national championship. But remember context, okay? This is where I want to give you some access. The month prior, Alabama had gone to the Iron Bowl against Auburn, and they lost that Iron Bowl. They got beat 26-14. to 14. And that was a game that Jalen Hurts started. There had been a buildup. If you cover Alabama, if you follow Alabama very, very closely, you had heard the whispers about some kid out of Hawaii named Tua Tungavailoa. Recruiting fanatics knew about him. Elsewhere, people had only seen him in garbage time. And he looked really good in garbage time, but he was still a true freshman. And um, as the season goes on, you start hearing whispers from people you probably trust saying, you know what we're hearing out of practice is Jalen Hurts is the more trusted quarterback. He's the one Saban's going to go with. But there are a lot of people in the Alabama program who really think Jalen Hurts is their second best quarterback. You get to the Iron Bowl and they lose. And offense is very stagnant in the second half. Well, what I did as that game was ending, mainly because I hate being on the field when it gets stormed, is I went up the tunnel before the game was over. And I saw Alabama come up their tunnel. And I know that on the surface, the perception a lot of people have of the Alabama program is one that is very buttoned down, very professional, 
stone-faced, and it was anything but that. There's a lot of drama behind the scenes with them, just like there is other programs. It's just they've got the best head coach in a generation or multiple generations that doesn't let you know about it. And they win in spite of it a lot of time. So that team comes up, and you would think you were witnessing a borderline mutiny, especially from some of the wide receivers, who were irate that no change had been made at the quarterback position. So I'm observing all this. I talked about it a little bit on the show the following week, but I didn't get into specifics. I don't think it's my business to do that. And uh, some things are better left unsaid. But Auburn goes on to the SEC championship game. They lose to Georgia. Alabama ends up getting in the playoff. They go beat Clemson. The plan was for Tonga Vailoa to play against Clemson. It just was a game that unfolded in such a manner where defense stifled Clemson, and there was never a point where Tua Tonga Vailoa needed to play. And then comes the national championship game. And we're approaching halftime. And it's obvious. Hurts ain't got it. And they don't have it with him at quarterback. I had no doubt they were going to make the change at halftime. I had resigned myself to the idea that Georgia was winning this game regardless. I had already started to get my talking points ready because I was there in dual roles. I was covering it for the late kick that I did at the time independently down in Columbus, Georgia, but I was also there covering it for the news station that I worked for in Columbus. So I didn't really have time to worry about that. I had to get my on-field stuff ready because we had live stand-ups to do post-game. We had all kinds of stuff to do post-game. And so I've already got my Georgia stuff ready. We go down to the field in the fourth quarter, and all of a sudden that comeback starts to happen. And most notably, you guys in Georgia circles remember the fake punt call. And I was walking from end zone to end zone. I was not watching the punt happen as it happened. All of a sudden, I'm at about the 50-yard line. I'm on Georgia's sideline at about the 50-yard line. Georgia's sideline goes apoplectic, and there is a you know, big exclamation in the crowd. I thought someone had blocked a punt is what I thought had happened. I didn't know that they had faked it until I got down to the other end zone, watched the replay. Anyway, it's about that time that you get the sense that you're witnessing history in real time. And it's a weird feeling that I, I don't know that I've ever felt it in any other walk of life, but there's a, it happens a lot covering SEC football, I'll tell you that. So I've, I've felt it a few times, and this game was one of them. Being on the field, when they completed that pass in overtime to Tuatonga Vailoa, Devontae Smith, Alabama wins that game, I just pulled out the iPhone. This is footage I actually shot. So got right there as close as I could to the dog pile because I knew you guys would want to see that footage, and there's the footage Colin's playing for you right now. Again, witnessing history real time. And all the while, you remember, at Auburn, a month prior, people had wanted Nick Saban to make the change he made in this game, and he didn't make it. People had wanted all season, including members of that coaching staff, for him to make that change, and he hadn't made it. And then he finally made it. And to understand how much stuff had just happened in that game, and they ended up winning it anyway, was incredible. So being on the field afterwards, I've been on the field for a lot of big Alabama games. They've played in a lot of them. I've been there for every one of them. Never seen Nick Saban act like he did afterwards. Not just on the field. Being around him once he gets up that tunnel, once he gets in the locker room, and there's not necessarily many live cameras left around. An outpouring of emotion. He had the exact same one the following year when they beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. When Jalen Hurts came in and replaced Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Only time I think I've ever seen tears in his eyes was when he got up the tunnel after that. But it was much the same way in this game. Uh, afterwards, I stay. I didn't leave till the sun came up the following morning because I only lived an hour south of Atlanta at the time. Um, I remember Kirk Herbstreet and Chris Fowler long after the confetti had settled 
came down there. They came in Alabama's locker room. And just, I can imagine being on the broadcast team, you know someone's popping not a VHS version or but a digital version of that game in 50 years from now and showing it to their kids and their grandkids. And their, in my case, I get to say, hey, man, I was on the field. Look at that. There I am. But in any event, if you're an Alabama fan, you're popping that in saying, look at what happened. And if you're in that broadcast booth, that's how your mind works real time. But that was one of the, probably the most surreal moment that I've had the pleasure of witnessing live so far in my career in this avenue. And it was amazing to see, but on the drive home that morning following, all I could think about was how many things, how many tumblers had to fall into place. Because once you lose that iron bowl, your fate's out of your hands. And as fate would have it, you get to go to that playoff and remembering what the scene was. While everyone else is thinking about what Tonga Vailoa had just done, all I could think about is remember what the scene was down that tunnel at Auburn when they had just lost. If you had told me in that very moment that this was going to be the way their season ended, I would have bet you any amount of money that you were crazy. That's why you love college football. And that's why people are so desperate to have it return this year. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, let's move on. There was a guy that had been on that coaching staff and had already been fired the year before and had himself a new job. His name's Lane Kiffin. I'm not in the majority with Lane Kiffin right now. I did a little unofficial straw poll today, very unscientific, with Lane Kiffin. Not with him, mind you. Colin, I bet we could get him on the show, but a lot of people don't believe in Lane Kiffin. I don't blame you, okay? But let me get into this a little bit. A simple question I ask is, do you believe that failure is a necessary part of success? Do you believe you have to fail before you succeed? Most of you would answer yes. Most of you would say failure, if processed the right way, is instrumental in ultimately contributing to your success. Anyone who's achieved any level of success in business, in your personal life, you understand this concept. And yet, a lot of you are college football fans, and you totally write coaches off. Once they fail at one stop or two stops, you write them off. And I'm not necessarily of that mentality. And I'll give you a very, very recent example of how this illustration really drives home the point. And that's Ed Orgeron. Ed Orgeron had been the head coach at Ole Miss, and Ed Orgeron was not a very good head coach at Ole Miss. His record, as we like to say, spoke for itself. And so Ed Orgeron, it looks for all the world like he's never going to get another head coaching job. He's a position coach. He's a really good recruiter. But, hey, we tried this whole experiment of Ed Orgeron coaching at the head coaching level out at Ole Miss, and it didn't work. And that's all anyone could remember when LSU decided Ed Orgeron's going to be our head coach. Okay, well... The most popular refrain by 10 Miles was, he's not going to be successful. And when someone pressed you on why, the most common answer by 10 Miles was, well, look at what he did at Ole Miss. He failed at Ole Miss. 
A lot of people just took that to mean, well, it's automatic. He's going to fail here. We know who he is as a head coach. Never considering that it's possible that someone could learn lessons in a failure that are applicable to a future opportunity if they're given that opportunity. And so now Lane Kiffin had opportunities everywhere from Knoxville, Tennessee to Oakland to USC. And then he gets plucked off the scrap heap, goes to Alabama, gets himself a head job three years later at Florida Atlantic, and now he's right back in the SEC. There's a lot we don't know with Lane Kiffin. Let's talk about what we do know. I'll tell you, I'm not selling my Lane Kiffin stock like a lot of other people are. Here's what we do know. Lane Kiffin is very highly regarded as a football mind. A lot of people doubt him. A lot of people chip away at the veneer, but they never say it's because the guy lacks football acumen. There are other reasons, intangible in nature, and I don't have a problem with you bringing them up. The past is the past. Facts are facts. But what we do know is that guy is one of the best offensive minds in the sport. We also know, and if you don't, I can tell you, he is loved nearly universally by players of the teams that he's on. He had three years under Nick Saban after he hit rock bottom. We know that. We know from there he went to Florida Atlantic, and a lot of folks are going to leave that stop at Florida Atlantic out of the mountain of reasons to doubt Lane Kiffin. They're going to leave it out because he was successful at Florida Atlantic as a head coach. Now, we also know he's a lightning rod. That's not a bad thing for Ole Miss. That's a good thing. But here's the other thing we know. There was a market for Lane Kiffin. Do you remember when Ole Miss landed him? Ole Miss wasn't the only program after him. So there's a lot we do know about him. And the folks who doubt him, there's always this giant but after they state their reasons. And the giant but is, but that guy's a good football coach now. He, he, he knows offense. He knows how to call plays. He knows how to design game plans. He knows how to get his players in the right spot. Players gravitate towards him. He can recruit lights out. So there are a lot of football boxes that Lane Kiffin checks. It's the mirror that's been his worst enemy. So the biggest question to me is not about Lane Kiffin's football acumen. The biggest question is, is the guy in the mirror ready to lead men? Is he ready to be a leader of a football program? If he is, all the other stuff's in place. I can't know that. You can't know that. Two entities can know the answer to that, and that's God and that's Lane Kiffin, because those are the only two that really know that man's heart. If his heart's in the right place, Ole Miss is going to win a lot of football games, a lot of them. His shortcomings, I'm telling you, they're non-chalk, which is a football term to say it doesn't have to do anything with him designing a play on third and seven. It's all intangible. It's all off the field. It's all been of his own doing. And I don't think if he were sitting right here, he'd really argue that. Where's his mind at? If it's ready to lead a program effectively, I look forward to watching him. If I were to try and guess my way into Lane Kiffin's mind, if I were to try to put myself, and I guess I could say it that way, if I were to try and put myself in Lane Kiffin's shoes right now and previous few years, I think to myself, he's on the scrap heap and he gets picked up by Nick Saban. And he deals with a lot of stuff and has to grin and bear it in Tuscaloosa because he knows he's paying a price for his own shortcomings. And then he gets a head job at Florida Atlantic. And all the while, you know what he's watching? He's watching his program right here. And with one eye, he's got to be watching guys like Lincoln Riley doing what he's doing at Oklahoma. With all the respect in the world for Lincoln Riley, but I can tell you whether you believe it or not, the guy on the bottom of the screen right here, for those of you watching on YouTube, Lane Kiffin, looks at Lincoln Riley and says, I'm every bit the equal of Lincoln Riley. 
In fact, I'm probably better than Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day, Tom Herman, a lot of these young guys getting shots at major programs. The only reason that's not me is because of reasons that I've inflicted upon myself. If he's got it cleaned up, Lane Kiffin in the not-too-distant future, whether it be in Oxford, Mississippi, or somewhere else, is Lincoln Riley. He is Tom Herman. He is Ryan Day. He is a superstar coach that still has 25-plus years left. That could be Lane Kiffin. Only thing that's standing in the way? Lane Kiffin. I pull for Lane Kiffin. I, I'm selfish in the reasons I pull for Lane Kiffin, which are not hard to figure out. The thing about Lane Kiffin is, if I were to ask right now, I'm going to give everyone watching five seconds and everyone listening five seconds, come up in your own words with your opinion on Kiffin. And then I go, one, two, three, four, five, shoot. A lot of you said, I can't stand him. He's a jerk. He's arrogant, whatever. And some of you said, I like him. None of you said, don't really have an opinion one way or the other. Everyone has some opinion of Lane Kiffin. Those are the best kind of guys to have in the sport. And selfishly, as a guy who grew up covering the SEC, when the conference has been at its best, those are the kinds of personalities that have been down here. But you don't have to sacrifice football IQ to have those personalities. When you pay the kind of money they pay in the SEC, you can just get the best of both worlds. You can draw the Venn diagram, and then you got the best characters and the best coaches. There's some overlap there. Hang out in that area where the overlap is. I wanted to give you another story, too. The other night, I told you, it's a fascinating story. I had a couple of um, radio shows that wanted to bring me on just to retell the story. I was on with Drew DeArmond and the guys up in Huntsville, 97.7 ESPN Radio this morning, talking about the 2016 LSU-Auburn game and all that happened afterwards. Well, what I wanted to do tonight, because some of you Auburn fans very accurately reminded me, hey, remember what happened the following year? Because the, the opposite almost happened the following year. So I'm going to go down that road. 2017, the, I think we could do an entire episode on just Auburn's 2017 season. One of the most fascinating seasons I've ever witnessed. And I witnessed it really, really up close because at the time I lived 45 minutes to the east of Auburn, Alabama. So that was the program that I was probably closest to. I'll start by saying this. For a long time, LSU fans and Auburn fans were getting good results. They were nine win caliber programs and their fans were so frustrated. And I was always in a unique position because on one hand, someone that's a Purdue fan would say, you guys are so myopic down there. Do you know what we would do to have nine wins? We'd, we'd love to have nine wins. But I always understood it. I always understood it because I knew the investment at LSU. And I'm not talking about from an athletic department standpoint. At Auburn and at LSU, you guys were looking around you were seeing your biggest rival in Alabama rack up national championships and they're in the hunt every year even when they don't win it. And you're thinking to yourself, when that request comes every summer and I fill out my donation check, I do the same thing as my Bama buddy does. And when I'm asked to attend functions, I do it just like my Bama buddy does. And when I look at our budget and how much we invest into football, at LSU, we do it just like Alabama does. We care just as much as they do. And from a fan standpoint, I give financially and emotionally every bit as much as my Alabama buddies do. But my return on investment does not match that of my Alabama buddy. Now, this is 2016, 2017 LSU and Auburn mentality. That's not hard to understand, guys. I, in fact, it's very relatable. You invest, you want to return. 
It's as simple as that. It's no different in fandom than it is in stock. It's no different than it is financially. The principle is understandable. Where the rubber meets the road is you just so happen to have a guy at Alabama who's really, really good, but fans don't want to hear that. So on one hand, I understood the frustration. On the other hand, you go, yeah, but, and then they don't want to hear the but. 2017 Auburn, I thought it was a very impressive team. But for some people, it wasn't good enough. But I want you to remember what happened. And then I'm going to give you a little behind the scenes from the LSU game. They opened number 12. Okay, so high expectations on the Plains in 2017. They had a new coordinator, offensively named Chip Lindsey. They had a new quarterback by the name of Jarrett Stidham, who was transferring in from Baylor. Week two, they go to Clemson. Clemson's fresh off a national championship. They lost 14 to 6. That Clemson team would go on to the playoff again that year. They didn't lose again until they got to week seven. So they're five and one. This Auburn team goes to LSU five and one. They go up 20 to nothing and proceed to lose the game 27 to 23. These are highlights of that day. About midway through the second quarter, it had the feel of an absolute blowout. I thought they were gonna rip LSU's throat out on live TV and then just hold it up above their head and let the blood drip down their chest. That's the kind of feel it had early. That's not how the game ended. Well. Me being the person I am, I left the field midway through the second quarter because I wanted to beat the line in the press box for the halftime meal. Because no one does halftime meals better than the folks in Baton Rouge, which I don't think comes as a surprise to many people who've ever been down there. And all of a sudden I get to the press box and the score uh, at halftimes, LSU's put two scores on the board. So I said, oh, well, it turns out we are going to play the second half here. And they shut Auburn out in the second half. And they go on to win 27-23. to 23. And boy, oh boy, what a post-game scene. Because the Auburn sideline and the Auburn team was about as shell-shocked as any team I've seen in quite some time. And so, just as I did the year before, I didn't follow the winning team that day. I got the sense that I probably need to stick with the losing team here. So I went into Gus Malzahn's press conference. That's the most vivid scene. This is what you don't get to see. I'm standing there. It's a very small, listen, one of the things that I love about the road in college football is it's a true home field advantage. Home accommodations are palatial. They're great. They're phenomenal. Spare no expense. The road accommodations are broom closets. And so at LSU, you got a room that is smaller than the studio I'm sitting in right now. And this studio, uh, Colin makes it look big. It's not all that big. And there's no air circulation. It's really hot in there. And most coaches' wives, Christy Malzahn included, go to all the games on the road. And they're there. You don't see them, but they're just off to the side. Um, They're in full Tammy Wynette mode. And so Christy Malzahn's there. And she's leaned up against a wall, win or lose. And the Auburn, some of the Auburn beat guys are talking very loudly. And they're just trashing Malzahn. And she can hear it. She's well within earshot. Okay, that's, that's burned into my mind the rest of the year. Because I'm standing there thinking to myself, look at her, man. Like, she, she can hear this. And she didn't even look up. So that was what it was. And leaving there, there was no bye week. Auburn had to go right back out on the road. The talk all week was not if, but when Malzahn's fired at the end of the year, who is Auburn getting to replace him? There were already hot boards on the Auburn message boards. There were already hot boards of potential replacement head coaches. Bookmark the Christy Malzahn moment because it's going to be important about five weeks later. They go on the road. They smash Arkansas, which in and of itself I thought was impressive because Malzahn was able to get his team right back off the deck. That was when I knew their season wasn't dead. 
That was the big question mark game to me. Because if their season was dead, then they'd get rolled by Arkansas no matter how bad Arkansas was. They didn't. They crushed Arkansas. Then they beat Texas A&M. I think it was like 47-42. That game, you talk to anyone close to the Auburn program, they knew that they had all the fabled momentum, which I think is an overused term. Whatever the juice is that you need down the stretch, they felt like they got it that game against A&M. And then you know the rest. Number one, Georgia comes into Jordan-Hare Stadium a few weeks later. They got smashed, 40-17. to 17. Alabama, number one, comes into Jordan-Hare Stadium. They lose 26-14. to 14. Five weeks on the calendar have passed since that moment in the post-game press conference where the Auburn beat guys, not all, some of whom, are trashing Malzahn to the point where his wife can hear. And the entire week following, the entire fan base is ready to run him out of town on a rail. Five weeks, guys. This is college football. Five weeks later, the entire fan base is behind him. There is a groundswell of support for Malzahn, and Malzahn does, along with his representation, exactly what he should do. They're headed to the SEC championship game, and they get on the horn, and they call University or Auburn University, excuse me, and they say, it's time to talk contract extension. Not after the season, right now. We want guarantees in place before this Saturday. Because something had happened in Fayetteville, Arkansas. There was a job opening there. And they were ready to offer Malzahn a lot of money. So you had the groundswell of support. You had a red-hot finish to the season. Wins over your two biggest rivals when both were ranked number one. And you had leverage. And Malzahn and his representation, being Jimmy Sexton, worked Auburn. They worked him. And they got him a fat new contract extension that, again, if you would have told me five weeks earlier when his obituary was being written in his post-game press conference, this dude is about to exit this season with a Western Division title and a huge new contract that guarantees him $7 million a year, I would have thought you were crazy. But yet you wouldn't have been crazy. You would have just been totally accurate in how that season was going to end. And let me tell you something about Gus Malzahn. I've been around him for every big game that he's had since then. Some he's won, some he's lost. Gus Malzahn has never appeared rattled to me since that time because he got Auburn, he got what he needed, he got financial security, and from that point forward, those of you familiar with his buyout know exactly what I'm talking about. He's been in full DGAF mode. Anytime that someone talks about his job being on the line, he just kind of chuckles, rolls his eyes, and, well, I'll just coach as long as they want me to coach here, and, you know, if they fire me, I'll buy a private island somewhere in the Caribbean because I can afford to do it. That 2017 season was wild, guys. Keep in mind, the other story I told you earlier in the show... <laughs> That also happened in 2017. So, if you really want to kill time, just go back and watch games from the 2017 season. Uh, college football is wonderful. I know a lot of you prefer the pro game. That stuff does not happen in the pro game the way it does here. We're going to be back here Sunday night. Again, God willing, and security at the building willing, we will be back here Sunday night. Uh, if you haven't already, again, please subscribe to the channel. Click the bell for notifications because that quite literally lets you know when our live shows start. And do me a favor, click this thumbs up button before you leave, whether you're watching live or on replay because that really helps us out. Uh, we'll be back here Sunday night again. I'm Josh Pate for Colin, for Aaron, for everyone else here. This has been The Late Kick. Have a great weekend. show is fire country i'm not a hero i'm in orange for a reason they're taking 12 months off your sentence you're free 
lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. You speak. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.